WDBM East Lansing. This is City Pulse on the Air. Joining you now, your Editor-in-Chief of the Lansing City Pulse, Burl Schwartz. Hello, welcome to City Pulse on the Air. I'm Arts and Culture Editor Skylar Ashley, filling in for Burl Schwartz, who is currently out of town. We'll kick off the show with Burl's weekly conversation with MSU political scientist Matt Grossman. The two continue to their discussion on the 2020 presidential election and how it continues to heat up. Matt, it uh, seems like we can say this every week, but what a week. Uh, what, what are the highlights? Well, it was uh, a bit of a return to normal for the presidential candidates uh, in terms of their messaging. We had had these weeks coming out of the RNC where everything was focused on uh, the protests and associated property damage and uh, riot threats. And now uh, Trump has returned uh, to an economic uh, message and uh, Biden uh, has also uh, reinforced uh, some of that basic class rhetoric that you've heard from Democrats talking about Scranton versus Park Avenue last okay. night. So uh, there, I think, has been a kind of a, a reversion back to your, your regular party messages to swing voters. Well, things seem to be working for Biden. A new story in the New York Times on Friday puts him, uh, not only him well ahead in uh, important uh, swing states, but uh, some senators, uh, uh, Republican incumbents seem to be in trouble, Arizona and Maine, and uh, forget where else. It, it looks like Biden is still on the right track as we, as we get another week closer. Right. So Biden being ahead means any any week that uh, the dynamics of the race don't change that much is good for him. Um, and as you say, the Senate races are uh, very correlated. And if anything, the Republican Senate candidates are doing a little bit worse uh, than uh, Donald Trump in some of those key states like Arizona, Colorado, North Carolina, Maine. So um, that things do look positive for, for Democrats. I will say um, they, they also look somewhat positive for Democrats at this uh, point uh, in previous elections. And so you can always have a, a polling surprise uh, at the end, um, but we still uh, expect uh, a pretty good accuracy and that should be good for Democrats. The uh, Times story reported, uh, and I'll quote this, and I want to see if uh, if you agree, the underlying dynamics of the race appear to be stable and consistent with national trends, with Mr. Biden leading among women, voters of color and educated whites, and Mr. Trump's strongest support coming from men and white voters who did not attend college. Uh, overall, is that uh, the shape of things? Well, those are uh, pretty long-running party coalitions for the most part, um, but uh, if anything, the polls actually show um, that a, a few of those divides are actually shrinking in 2020 compared to 2016. So because Biden has done better among white voters, has improved more among white voters than among minority voters, the racial divide is actually shrinking a bit. Uh, he's doing better among older voters, so the age divide is shrinking a bit. Uh, he's doing better among men, so the gender divide might be shrinking a bit. So. Um, those are the traditional patterns, and they certainly will still hold up, um, but it doesn't necessarily mean those divides will get wider every election. Uh, do you see enough uh, distance between them that uh, the popular vote sounds like it's going for Biden? Uh, is it enough to carry the Electoral College? 
Yeah, uh, a model by The Economist actually has a, a 97% chance that uh, Biden will win the popular vote, um, but really only, I think, a 75 or 80% chance that he'll win uh, the, the Electoral College. So whether you believe those numbers are too high or not, uh, there's certainly a sizable gap um, between his chances in one or the other. Importantly, we did not know that, that Trump would have an Electoral College uh, advantage at this point in 2016. So it's not always clear in advance from the polls that the, the national polls will go in a slightly different direction than the state polls. But it is clear this time uh, that Trump does seem to be doing a little bit better in those tipping point states like Pennsylvania and Florida than he is in the national popular vote. And we're talking, you're listening to 89FM here on the impact. I'm uh, Burl Schwartz talking to MSU political scientist Matt Grossman. Uh, Matt, the, uh, the we, we saw, we, I didn't personally see uh, President Trump on ABC. I heard some commentators say it was a, a, an appallingly bad performance. He was unprepared. I did see all of Joe Biden last uh, on Thursday night on CNN. And uh, he seemed very strong. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts on uh, how the debate may shape up in light of these performances? Well, historically, the challenger uh, tends to do well uh, against an incumbent president in the first debate. Um, it's, uh, we think the explanation is that the incumbent is sort of used to having full control over um, what the, the questions look like, how they respond. Um, and so they get back into this mode where they are kind of have to be responsive um, and they don't do quite as well. It happened even to Obama in 2012, for example, against Mitt Romney. And so um, that is kind of a common expectation. And you might have seen some of that in the, the comparison of those uh, journalistic uh, questions. That is, you know, Trump is not used to having to respond. He's used to kind of having, being able to kind of shut it down. And uh, Biden is now more used to having gone through so many debates in the Democratic primary, he is a lot more used to um, being challenged uh, by questioners and individual citizens. Uh, you remind me of the um, Reagan-Mondale campaign and uh, Mondale's uh, Victoria's first debate, uh, which in no way indicated the uh, landslide victory Ronald Reagan scored, but uh, and and uh, Reagan turned it around with one comment. Do you remember that? Oh yes, uh, the yeah, and it is it is true that the first debate. Uh, has these dynamics, but it tends to be, they tend to be temporary. That is, almost none of those bounces that the challenging candidate gets out of the first debate end up, um, end up lasting. Um, and so a lot of the debate effects are pretty temporary. That said, we have, uh, we'll have four debates, including the vice presidential, all um, squeezed into about a month. Um, so those are the, the main set pieces left in the campaign. And the memory I was going for was Ronald Reagan in the second debate, uh, pointing out that it didn't bother him how young Mondale was. Uh, of course, age was an issue because Reagan went on to become the oldest president uh, uh, in U.S. history. Well, not make an issue of my uh, opponent's youth and inexperience, yes. Exactly. Well, before we go, uh, Bob Woodward uh, once again proved he's the most important journalist of our generation. Uh, any lasting effects, do you think, from his disclosures? 
Well, this uh, uh, did get some attention. Um, there's some some new data um, that uh, where where the people asked just what have you been hearing about the presidential candidates um, each week, and uh, those comments, um, Trump's uh, comments about. Um, uh, veterans did break through. Um, for for most of the campaign, the number one thing people hear, are hearing about Trump has been COVID, coronavirus, almost every week. And for about a week, those comments uh, sort of overtook that in in coming out um, as as something people have been hearing. Um, but we don't necessarily expect those things to to last. Um, these week to week dynamics. Um, uh, but uh, you know, the, certainly an opening for the Democratic candidates uh, to to press uh, on an issue that normally Republicans have some strength on. And there do seem to be some undecideds. Again, going back to that Times story, the in Arizona they found a seven percent undecided rate, six in Maine, sixteen in North Carolina. Uh, you got to believe that uh, COVID nineteen weigh heavily on uh, many of those people. Uh, any other uh, issues you think at this point still could uh, turn things around for Trump? Well, I think that he, he actually has a, the best performance on the economy. And so he is, um, there are some ads running um, in Michigan where he's uh, trying to say Biden would shut down the economy again and, and hurt the recovery. And I think that's potentially a good uh, issue for him. I don't know if it's going to be, you know, if it's going to be enough. Um, he's also running ads attacking um, Biden on Social Security, basically the same ones that that Bernie ran in the primary. Uh, so uh, that's also a message um, that that could um, could break through. Um, so the candidates are kind of running the messages. There was actually we, we've talked about a study where they they said that the messages on Biden pro and con were more influential in people's voting decisions, and basically the candidates are running almost all of the messages that that were run in that study. So um, they they are showing knowledge of what still moves undecided voters. It's just that the effects that we would expect are pretty small, and they tend to cancel out. Yeah, I, uh, Biden last night, at some point, I don't know if he meant to say this, but he literally said that nobody would have died if Trump uh, had done his job. Uh, I, I wonder if he's on the verge of a famous Biden uh, misstatement. Well, there was an expectation going in that there would be kind of these constant uh, Biden flubs, and that hasn't necessarily been uh, borne out. Um, and they they seem to have kind of uh, uh, they seem to have gotten just as much mileage out of um, making big deals about things that Trump said as as Biden. So that hasn't been in a, a disadvantage so far. But one thing we know about debates is that they tend, as we talked about, not to be remembered for everything that was said, but for one key moment. Uh, and more people watch the news coverage following the debate than watch the debate itself. And so you can have these impressions that come from the debate, not from the main substance of the debate, but from the one thing that's repeated over and over. And so uh, one flub uh, could, could, uh, could change the dynamics of the race if the media decides it's a big deal. Very good. Well, uh, I do want to mention to our listeners uh, before uh, we go that City Pulse has uh, uh, partnered with Mirrors, the Capital News Service, and starting next week, we will have a dispatch every week from different parts of Michigan to see uh, voter reaction at this point. Matt Grossman from MSU, thanks so much for being on City Pulse. We'll talk to you again next week. Great. Thank you.
Thanks, Burl. You're listening to City Pulse on 88.9 FM, The Impact. Up next, we are going to hear Cole Tunningly speak with local comedian and lawyer Robert Jenkins about gun ownership. Jenkins, an African-American man, said he's spent his lifetime witnessing racism and oppression and was inspired to utilize his own Second Amendment right after activists stormed the Capitol back in May to protest Governor Whitmer's COVID-19 safety measures. Here's the story. Robert Jenkins, a local comedian and lawyer, considers himself very liberal, but he finds himself disagreeing with people on one issue, gun control. He started buying guns after a confrontation outside of a bar that could have turned ugly, and he has no plans to give them up. He keeps them for self-defense, and because, well, people that disagree with him politically tend to own a lot of guns. After witnessing the wave of protests that took place after the murder of George Floyd, Jenkins went out and bought himself another gun. During the protest, you know, when, when they all went down to the, the Capitol, you know what I mean? They went out to the Capitol and stormed the Capitol with all those guns and all that. I said, okay, I see how it is. So I'll say, you know, I had a couple guns before that, but I'm like, I need to go get some shit, get some real, you know. I want the same shit they got. So I went online. I was looking and I found this uh, this gun. It's uh, the, the Springfield Saint. It's a AR. It's a pistol, but it's on the AR platform. So it's basically an AR-15 pistol, and it's a okay. pistol because it's a very short barrel. You know, the barrel is I think ten inches, and uh, it shoots five, five, six, two, two, three. So it shoots the same rounds as AR-15, but it's really short. It's really compact, and uh, I mean, it's seven pounds, like five or like anywhere between like six, seven pounds. Until I, until I put the ammo in it, then it get a little bit heavy. But uh, taking it to the range, I, I got a scope. I put a scope on it, a red dot, and I got a magazine that holds a hundred rounds. Like, and it's just really cool. It's like I've never been really into guns like that, but given our current climate and seeing how things are going, I'm. I wish that liberal people would start getting into guns more. Jenkins wasn't always into guns. In fact, it's kind of a new hobby for him. While his views on gun control have always been complicated, he hasn't always been the proud gun owner that he is now. During his childhood, Jenkins was taught to never go near guns. They were seen as too dangerous for a young black boy to even hold, let alone shoot. It took decades for him to feel okay holding a gun. Because, you know, we grew up, at least how I grew up, like my parents never let me touch a gun. Like when I had, and when we had guns, when I had like water guns, they were like cartoonish guns. And I didn't understand it when I was a child. But looking back on it, they didn't want me playing with a fake gun and had a police shoot me and kill me like they did Tamir Rice. You know what I'm saying? So I was, I wasn't saying I wouldn't say I was like afraid of guns, but I definitely was not exposed to them until much later. And uh, I got my first gun uh, when I started doing comedy, actually. What was that? Yeah, because I got into an incident at this bar in the middle of nowhere where these guys, they wanted, they thought they were going to jump me. And, uh, you know, it was three of them. They wanted to fight me. And the owner of the bar wouldn't, escort me out to my car or wouldn't didn't give a f- 
after the show. You know what I mean? He was like, whatever. So, and I don't call police. So, you know, I had to get out of that situation. And then I thought to myself, like, okay, I see how it is. I should probably go and get, get a gun. So I went and got my concealed carry license, got a gun. Then I got a few more along the way. And uh, now here I am. Doing comedy has put Jenkins in a plethora of dangerous situations. He often finds himself traveling to the furthest reaches of rural Michigan to do open mics and get some time on stage. Most of the time, he's traveling alone. Jenkins doesn't know exactly why he keeps getting into these situations, but he has a few theories. Well, with me, it's normally, it's not ever normally one specific joke. It's so really so like, it's a multitude of things. But it, there were three of them, and there were four people in total, but one of them was a woman, and I believe one of the guys was on a date. And I can't know this for sure, but this has happened to me enough times where a guy will be on a date and the the woman he's with is laughing. She's having a good time. And some guys are weird about that. Like they think that I'm on stage trying to like steal a woman. Like I'm married. I don't, I didn't come here for all that. I came here to do a good job. Like I'm happy when he should be happy because if women laugh, then they will probably f- you later. So but him being the idiot he was, he's like, what do you mean? He feels threatened. Like, what? I'm funny, too. <laughs> and so after the show, they they kind of stepped towards me. And it started off kind of friendly. But I've been in enough of these situations to know that they weren't trying to be friendly. Like, you know, they're just, just trying to fill me out to see, you know, if they could get away with bothering me. And then, you know, when I let them know they couldn't, that's when it escalated. I'm talking back, but I'm talking as I move towards my car. So I'm not standing there trying to confront them. I'm like, yeah, you know, whatever. And they just were talking. I don't, in in the grand scheme of things, I don't think they were necessarily looking for, they didn't really want that smoke. They just wanted to talk. But had they wanted it, then I would have been at a disadvantage because it was three of them. It's only one of me. After buying that first gun, Jenkins began to accumulate more and more. He lovingly takes care of his guns and gets to know them inside and out. Since diving into gun ownership as a hobby, Jenkins has been diligently training. He, understandably, focuses on practicing self-defense. He hasn't been able to practice with his gun outside much, but he found a welcoming gun range where he likes to go and shoot. The range that, that they just opened up on Waverly, range 517, it's really nice. Uh, the range is really nice. And so I've been shooting out there. I haven't done as much outdoor shooting. But for me, it's strictly, you know, self-defense thing. It's, you know, pistols, and I'm shooting, you know, the, the range there is 25 yards. So I've been working back to 25 yards. I'm pretty good. But my main thing is in close, like 10 yards and then, you know, because most mm-hmm. of confrontations are happening very close range so really really practicing five yards and then you know jenkins is practical about how he practices he's not looking to become the next american sniper or the next great hunter he doesn't want to know how to shoot long distances he just wants to know how to be able to defend himself in a confrontation that could potentially happen in real life on the street 
to someone like him. If someone runs up to him on the street waving a gun, then he wants to know how to respond efficiently and keep himself safe. So that's what he works on when he goes to the range. Yeah, it's quick. It's, a, you know, most, most confrontations like that happen at point blank range. And most of the time it's no more than four or five rounds exchanged between people. And so you got to be willing, you got to know how to react to that. There's certain things you have to practice. Like you have to practice just simply drawing your gun. Like so many people go out to the range and they shoot and it's all cool and they shoot and they work on reloading and, and all that other stuff that you see on YouTube from people who have too much time on their hands. And, but people, you'd be shocked how many people don't even practice drawing their gun. Like if you can't get the mother out, like what good is it? Going to the range is Jenkins' main method of practice, but the COVID-19 pandemic has caused complications for gun owners like him everywhere. Gun ranges are getting shut down, guns are flying off the shelves, and now there's an ammunition shortage. This shortage has turned bullets into a hot commodity. Like a new toy during Christmas season, ammo is simply hard to find right now because everybody wants some. Right now we're in ammunition shortage. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to find ammo. Like you, you go to places, you know, I got some people I know, they call me. You know, they work at work at different places and they'll call me and tell me what's going on. But other than that, like if, if a truck comes in on Monday, by Monday afternoon, the rest of the has been picked over because people come in and buy it. So because we're in an ammo shortage, people have been saying, well, I can't go to the range. There's no ammo. But there's lots of things you can practice at home that have nothing to do with ammunition. Like you can practice drawing your weapon. You can practice dry firing. Where it's like you remove all the ammo from anywhere in the room and you can practice pulling the trigger smoothly so that you can get off an accurate shot, mm -hmm. you know? So, cause that's the most important thing to shooting in my opinion, honestly, isn't necessarily aiming as much as it is learning how to pull the trigger smoothly. Cause when you see people miss at close range, they miss because they jerked the trigger and brought the whole gun offline. Mm -hmm. You know, if you can keep the trigger smooth, then the, the bullet's going to go pretty much where you aim it. You know, you'll miss small. You won't miss big. You want to stop an accident? Don't put your finger on the trigger till you're ready to shoot. You know what I'm saying? Keep the gun pointed in the, in the safe direction. So, you know, if it does go off, it's not in front of anybody, mm -hmm. you know? So, just simple stuff like that, you know? The way Jenkins talks makes it seem like he will have a bright future as a firearms instructor. He knows his stuff, and he knows how to stay safe. The fundamentals that some gun owners ignore, Jenkins is trying to master. He hopes that his liberal friends will join him someday, learn the basics of gun safety. Ideally, for Jenkins, most liberals would look at the current moment and decide, like him, that it's time for the left to start buying their own guns. Jenkins believes that if any moment could persuade liberals to forget about gun control and arm themselves, it's right now, here in good old 2020. I wish, I wish, I mean, I think things are changing. I don't think that, I think everybody's starting to realize that like guns just are a thing in America. And it's like, we got 350, we have more guns than we have people. Yeah, so most of the people that you think aren't cool have them they're the ones that have them 
Now we have our side, we have some, but we don't have as many as they do. If you would like to know more about Jenkins, you can visit his website, robjcomedy.com. Jenkins has released two stand-up albums, Achievement Unlocked and Attempted Salvation. Those are available for download on his Bandcamp, robertjenkins.bandcamp.com. For City Pulse, I'm Cole Tunningly. Thanks, Cole. You're listening to City Pulse on 88.9 FM, The Impact. That about does it for our show. 